Welcome back to another episode of the Rankable Podcast. My name is Garrett Sussman of iPoll Rank. And man, I'm excited. This, this woman is just crushing it. She just puts out these blog posts all about actionable things that you can do with like templates and spreadsheets all in the world of like data science and machine learning and SEO. Today, I'm joined by Lazarina Stoy. Lazarina, she's the SEO and data science manager at Intrepid Digital. Um, she's passionate about SEO, data science, machine learning, automation, analytics, uh, creating educational resources. You should check out her own personal website. I mean, she just keeps dropping these like it's an example of someone who like knows SEO and then actually implements it on their own site. You know, you'll see these epic table of contents. It's so good. Her videos are good. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lazarina. Wow. Hi. Well, thanks so much. I don't know what to say after this amazing intro. I'm Whatever. Blushed, but, um, I'm like, no. I'm, 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 I'm a geek just because I appreciate, I think they're in the world of SEO. There are a lot of people who understand the philosophies and understand the concepts of building an SEO strategy, but so many times there's so much you can do with the data and a lot of SEOs don't necessarily make that connection. They, they kind of struggle to either report on it or use data to inform their strategy. You work a lot, for instance, with uh, Google Data Studio. So why do you... How do you look at Google Data Studio as a tool for reporting? And, and what do people really get wrong about it as a tool? That's a really nice question. I think that there is a few different things that come to mind straight away. I'm going to start with the easiest one. And it's something of a pet peeve of mine. And I'm super happy to see people like Aleda starting to talk about this. I'm sure other people have talked about this before. But it's about the understanding that Data Studio is only part of client reporting. It does not replace client reporting. So you might build an absolutely amazing dashboard, but this dashboard kind of has to be focused on the stakeholders. So who is going to be reading that? Is it going to be more of an internal tool that you're trying to build for your team? So for instance, like a content cannibalization dashboard, that's great, that's an amazing use case, but are you going to share it with your C-suite executives? Maybe not. Like, so from that point of view, I'm seeing um, a lot of, like in my practice, I'm seeing a lot of misconceptions about Data Studio being used as the report that you automatically send to the client. And I think that's wrong because you're kind of missing out a lot of important steps about connecting data to the strategy and seeing how uh, certain actions taken from your roadmap have impacted traffic or maybe external events and things like that. So I think bridging the gap there is the first kind of thing that um, I think is very important for people to understand. And then the second thing is that when people start using Data Studio and they start playing with the different connectors and they feel a little bit hindered by the connectors that are there. So for instance, you want to do something, you have this amazing spreadsheet and you just, people, I feel like struggle to uh, translate the spreadsheets to a report. And I think that's where you, you kind of have to start being a little bit creative. Who is going to use this? Are you going to use it on an ongoing basis? Is it going to be more simple to have a very organized, beautiful report and then just to replace the data source? And from that point of view, because people are so uh, focused on the word automation with Data Studio, they forget to use it as an actual tool that can visualize data, which is actually the intended purpose for it. And you know that goes for 
um, spreadsheets, it goes for whatever other data source that you might be connecting through an API and things like that. So long response, <laughs> so No, it, 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 I'm with you on so many different levels. So like, first off, when you're talking about the reporting to the C-suite versus the internal tools, like for instance, you built out, you know, a search intent data studio report that, you know, someone can really interact with and diagnose their own, their own website content. Um, that's not necessarily something that the C-suite's gonna, you know, have in front of them. Yeah, your internal team, you know, might interact with, you know, updating dates and whatnot. When you're looking at presenting to the C-suite, you talked about presenting those insights. Do you sort of have any best practices when it comes to how much information to include on a report? Like, should you really, really limit it? Or should you try to get it all on there and just when you're when you're presenting, walk through it? That's an, again, really, really good question. I think it really depends on the kind of organization that you work with. At Intrepid, uh, the agency that I'm the SEO and data science manager of, we work with enterprise organizations. That's like the majority of our business and also large and a little bit smaller, but really household names, e-commerce brands. Mm -hmm. But we also have a few different brands that are kind of like maybe SaaS startups. So if you get my drift there is different types of stakeholders that you might be doing reporting for and i have a point on this later to say and i'm sure it will come up but it's really important to know who you are reporting to and building a report with that person so because if you have a stakeholder that is a startup they're not going to care about what is the intent and what people are saying and like all this data that you've collected. They're going to care about growth. They're going to care about conversions. They're going to care about three big numbers on a piece of paper and to see a chart go up, you know, because that's how their mindset is. But if you're reporting into a very kind of bureaucratic, very hierarchical organization where people have someone breathing down their neck, then it's very important to include sufficient information for them um, because you don't really know exactly what they're reporting on and what data is going to be important for them. So from that point of view, it might be better to kind of build a little bit more context into your report, like we are seeing this because this happened and this happened and we did this and blah, blah, blah. So it's a little bit more work, but it really does depend who you are talking to at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point about like annual, uh, like automated versus manual reporting where, you know, like if you're working with the C-suite, you want to iterate, you want to improve, you want to make sure that you're surfacing the most important metrics to them. One thing you mentioned about uh, connectors and data, which I thought was really interesting, is like blending data and using it, you know, is and using APIs is really important and probably not done enough. Through your experience, do you prefer just creating your own data using like a Google Sheet or are there any like connectors? Because we know SaaS tools, like they try their best to, to build these connectors and sometimes they're a disaster sometimes, and sometimes, yeah, miserably. <laughs> sometimes they're awesome and sometimes they're not reliable. Do you, do you have any connectors specifically that you like working with or any that, I mean, not to throw anyone under the bus, but any that you're like hesitant on because, you know, maybe it doesn't update as frequently as you needed to. Right. <laughs> I will be very conservative with this response. Fair, fair. <laughs> but I will what do you like? The connectors that work are those, like you said, that you kind of have control over. So there's this, there's this um, 
theory in like the data science world that your data, um, the work in data science can split into several different categories. And one of them, like a very important pillar of important data science work is to have accurate data. So you really hit the nail on the head there saying that if you don't have consistent uploading of that data, then obviously like what are you reporting on really? That's the first thing. And the second thing, without throwing anyone under the bus, whoever knows, knows, uh, if you have a connector for a tool that does a million different things, let's say Google Analytics is such a tool, you connect Google Analytics once, you get all your dimensions, and you have the ability to pivot them any way you want to. Obviously, some pivots and visualizations are going to work better than others, but that is a question for the visualization slash analyst. Um, and this is a kind of a different conversation, but if you have at the connection level, a number of different multiple choices and you have to connect to your data set using several different connections, if you are trying to build a very complex report, you are very much going to struggle with the limitations of Data Studio because you can only blend up to five data sources. So there are some connectors out there and my assumption is that they have a very fragmented database structure and they can't really pull out data from different places and chunk it up into one. Um, and because of that, I think the user experience when using these connectors is really, really poor. It, I, you know, you make me think, first off, I think it's always okay to potentially throw Google under the bus, you know, in terms of like, Google's doing great here. Google is doing great. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. So, so we, we shot, we uh, recorded this episode a month ago. This is, this is coming out, um, recorded this back in July. And so there was a article recently that came out from Patrick Stocks of Ahrefs, where he was talking about how like Google search console, for instance, and this is in the context of data, not always being reliable, that like 50% of your traffic, you know, they don't report on the keywords and, you know, not, not for everyone, but for a lot of, of Google search console. And then, so all of a sudden that data doesn't feel as reliable as, and, and we know this is an issue with sampling in general, but like that you're not getting the full reliable picture and you kind of have to at least keep that in mind when you're building your reports. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I can tell you a few other things that for me are super head scratching, but I do understand why they, why it happens from a legal standpoint, from a company standpoint, I get it. But at the same time, I just hate it. Um, at, recently, I started doing a lot more um, YouTube SEO, TikTok SEO for clients that we work with. And that those are extremely fun projects to work with because as you can imagine, there's a lot of data, natural language processing and, you know, entity extraction from common, all that sort of good stuff, you know, that I really like. And with that, I've started using the uh, YouTube connector for uh, Google Data Studio. And I have so many pet peeves with that. First of all, I, I don't understand how you cannot get the position rankings of your videos for certain queries, the same way that you have them in Search Console. That is absolutely crazy to me. <laughs> I don't understand if you have the underlying technology, why I don't release and democrat democratize the, this data, right? Like you, users need to have it. This is such an important thing. And you have to, it's so much more clunky, that world of video SEO, where you don't really have all of these processes set up the same way that we have them in like normal search SEO. And you kind of have to rely on third-party tools that are just up and coming different startups, SaaS brands. And I'm just thinking at one point I have a setup with like five different 
different SaaS brands only to extract basic data. And I'm like, what is going on here? Google, <laughs> get it it's, together. It's, it's on point specifically about YouTube because it's like when you see those graphs of like the market share of different search engines and YouTube is a major search engine and we have these expectations that, that you know, are set from others. It's funny because it's like, you know, Bing Webmaster Tools, for instance, is actually really good reporting despite the fact that nobody actually, you know, it doesn't have the market share that Google has, but you would think that with YouTube, it would provide that and that's just not the case. And, and that kind of goes to, you know, the Google monopoly issues and all that. Ultimately, you need the right data to be able to perform a lot of this SEO. And that's really interesting about YouTube SEO and TikTok SEO. I'm curious to kind of move on about just generally using data to inform SEO strategies. There's all these ways that you can creatively pull this data and do it. Um, what are some of your favorite strategies as a data scientist using like machine learning, for instance, like that you are actually building these strategies based on data? Cool. I don't have my favorites, but I can tell you what uh, I'm working on right now because yeah. it's always my favorite thing. Like whatever I'm working on right now, it always becomes my favorite thing. That's a life <laughs> philosophy great. right there. That's how yeah. your life should be, right? Love what you're working on. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I've recently started experimenting with a lot more than before with uh, entity extraction and trying to find the different ways that you can incorporate that into SEO strategy. And that kind of started, well, initially it started a few years ago uh, when I was working for a B2B organization and they had a ton of first party collected data that was form-based and it was sitting somewhere collecting dust. And I thought that would be a huge resource to try to find the common pet peeves of people and try to find the search volume for that or if it's zero, zero volume for B2B and for people that are not aware that is also sometimes a gold mine because you can very quickly capitalize on rankings that way and that was kind of the first time that I started doing entity recognition work and after that, I kind of paused for a little bit and recently I started picking it back up again. So for me, it's super interesting to see how you can recognize entities and try to incorporate that into internal linking strategy. You can also do online reputation management with entity recognition because you can not scrape the SERPs. You can use <laughs> an API <laughs> to collect the SERPs. <laughs> Um, and you can you can just analyze um, analyze the data from titles from meta descriptions and you can do online reputation management to see who is talking good about your brand who is talking bad about your brand and kind of using these tools that Google has created it's kind of although it's not confirmed or at least I'm not aware of um, we can we know that they use entities right like this is this is the part that is confirmed, but we don't know the extent of like how the public uh, version of natural language API overlaps with their internal algorithms that they have. But I think it's a very good first step to start experimenting and see maybe through the lens of this particular algorithm or through the lens of the knowledge graph or through the lens of any other type of uh, tool that they have public how does Google see your site, right? And then kind of connecting that to SEO strategy, I think that's super valuable. And also things like sentiment analysis, I think that's really, really cool. You can do so many cool things with that and kind of reports, research on your competitive landscape, 
uh, are any of your competitors performing better because they have like positive sentiment in their titles? Are any having negative sentiment? How does that impact them? And things like that. And I think it's a very cool way to make your job fun because like SEO can sometimes be extremely repetitive, especially if you're in an agency environment. And I think doing these kind of things is very fun to, to look at. I, I love, I love some of those, um, you know, ideas that you're talking about. What, like I'm obsessed with entity SEO. I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think also in the context of mom, as Google is trying to surface, you know, trying to help you refine your search or broaden your search, it's connecting you to the different entities and relationships within whatever your query is, is like Google tries to obviously keep you on the page. Um, but knowing your entity and kind of identifying how to become a topical authority on that entity is going to help you as Google continues to just refine the SERPs for people and whether or not your content is surfaced, you know, is going to matter based on the relevance of that entity. The other thing that I think is really interesting is for sentiment analysis, I can imagine, especially with both of our agencies working with enterprises, the idea of kind of taking sentiment analysis and share a voice and looking at how you're doing compared to your competitors. And like the one aspect is obviously visibility, but then overlapping that with sentiment analysis and seeing like how they kind of play together against what your considered competitors are versus obviously your your SEO competitors. Yeah, absolutely. I think also the the good thing, well, it's good for for us because we work in those kind of uh, settings. The good thing about (laughs) enterprise SEO organizations uh, and I say it because most people maybe will not, will not like this aspect of having a client like that, is that they care a lot about metrics that are in other contexts of SEO considered kind of vanity metrics, like share of voice is one very good example of that. But they, but they really care about it. And I think you're super correct in that you can connect that metric with a number of different metrics to kind of... Um, and, and I do want to say correlation does not equal causation. We know of that, course. of course, but it's like you, you can, if you have a pattern there, you can very quickly kind of start building a story from that. And obviously the story starts with, you know, the direction that you're uh, telling, telling the person to go when you're using this data, when you're doing data storytelling, you can start with that big number saying like, listen, this competitor X, and then like, what is their share of voice? And then like, listen, how they use entities, see how this looks like on the page, see what their organic strategy is, see what they do in terms of technical. And you kind of have to, uh, you know, take your your client on a journey there and kind of light a fire from under them to you know get them get them going, and that's really fun. I think connecting these different metrics that typically are considered vanity into a way that really tells a cohesive story, and that that's a the fun the fun side of data. I think. Oh, I I love that, and it's so true, and that's why like sentiment analysis gets so fun is because it is so like perfectly set up for storytelling, right? Like the pros and cons, the good, the bad, like, you know, whenever we tell stories, that's how we kind of, uh, you know, want to try to present things. And it kind of leads into perfectly segue to the next topic that I wanted to talk about, because you mentioned this idea of also how 
correlation doesn't always mean causation. And in SEO, in our industry, a lot of people, whenever you see a, you know, study or report come out, you want to say, oh, this means this because of, you know, all this data that we found and the methodology might be deceptive. In data science and machine learning and SEO, what are some of the common challenges or the mistakes that, you know, kind of data scientists make um, and how do you kind of resolve them? I can't speak for data scientists because I don't consider myself a data scientist. I wish one day. <laughs> Wait, like, why, why not? How do you distinguish? I feel like very junior in the data science world because I don't know if you know this, but machine learning has been around since like the 60s right. and there's so much work there and it's like such a huge, massive field that you like you can always only be learning like you can never be a true expert in it and I think SEO is quite similar in that sense like you you can be an expert in like one niche and then that doesn't mean that you're an expert in like every kind of SEO possible um so I can speak for like SEOs uh using data science what mistakes they make and in my eyes, the biggest one, um, and I actually have a video that I, I go off on a tangent about this that is going to release soon. I think it will be released by the time this podcast goes live. Yeah, we so we will it. link it in the description for <laughs> sure. I'm excited. I huge tangent to say this is a great like machine learning model. There's so many different things that you can do with it, but don't do these things. Like you can do them like certain um, let's say I, I can openly talk about this. So fuzzy matching, great example. Fuzzy matching, which you have a great article all about on your on your website. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, and the video is in the editing process. I'm finally there. I'm awesome. coming soon. I promise. Um, so it's like one of those algorithms that you kind of start working with and you see all of these different ways that you can implement it. So you can, let's say for instance, you have the broken backlinks report. Uh, these pages are no longer there. Fuzzy matching can help you find the next similar page on your website, boom, success. You have a redirection. Fuzzy matching can help you match your uh, broken redirects, success. You have like a broken 404 and you kind of get into the process and pushing the envelope a little bit further. And then you start to going into like uh, internal linking opportunities, which is a very gray area. You start going into competitor research, again, very gray area. And then you start going into keyword clustering, which is like a huge no for fuzzy matching because it's LeafFood has an amazing kind of article that talks about keyword clustering. And I really loved his little segment that he, he says, like I, I started with fuzzy matching but then I realized this is not the best approach. And why? Because the theory is like, it's not supporting it. It's just a simple string matching algorithm. It's not an entity recognition. It's not a synonym based. It does not comprehend meaning of keywords the same way that we humans do. So when it doesn't work, I think people often jump to say, oh, machine learning sucks. Look at these poor responses. <laughs> and I, I think if, if that's not the case, you kind of have to start with the theory a little bit, not, not that much to become like a PhD on the topic, but at least to kind of understand what this does and where you can use it and then kind of take a step back, think about the context of SEO, what's important, what isn't, and then kind of apply it where you can and don't apply it where you know it's going to fail because you're kind of setting yourself yourself up for failure that way so yeah I think that's my biggest kind of pet peeve <laughs> I, 
I love that. And, and I think you kind of speak to the idea of why data science is a science, right? Like with so many of these kind of strategies and tactics, it's like a lot of it is experimentation and testing and then looking at the results and saying, okay, is this result not what I expect to see to some extent, you know, as you're looking through it, you're like, okay, well, maybe, you know, this model isn't like maybe the model's broken, maybe the application is wrong. It's like you kind of, you know, ho hopefully you go in with some ideas of like what will work that are intuitive as opposed to just, you know, getting it completely wrong and, and you know, making those mistakes. But you still have to test, iterate, and, you know, like with anything, it's garbage in, garbage out. Like whatever you're, you're kind of, you know, training the machine on is going to impact the results too. Yeah, I think when uh, something else is a, a lot of people, at least in our industry, because we're not we're not machine learning engineers, like oh, very few of us are. Just tech shout out, <laughs> she is actually a machine. Oh, she's learning brilliant. Engineer. Um, but uh, yeah, very few of us are machine learning engineers, and I think the only kind of people that I know that are you know training their own models to then use are people that are either developing their own tools, uh, people from the likes of Andrea Volpini that has a tool and an agency. So obviously, yeah. like if you are just, uh, you know, an average Joe working in an agency uh, or Joanne, uh, you are uh, just, you know, using models that are available using those APIs and then trying to incorporate that into your process and understand the theory behind it. At least that's my process. I don't, uh, I don't consider this stage right now in my career, the, the stage where you are starting to, you know, really ramp up the production. <laughs> no, right. you're just trying to make your job like easier and more fun and try to see, because do you confidently think that you can train an algorithm better than, you know, OpenAI or Google? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and you already have them available. So, and, and the prices are extremely cheap to use. So from my point of view, I don't think that people should lunch with the expectation that they're going to become some prodigy on day two. It's just about, you know, simple incremental improvements that you can make to your process. And that's extremely valuable for most people. I, so, I love that. And, and I think, you know, you know, data science, machine learning, even though it is a very, you know, a longstanding um, field, it's, it does get very complicated. It's never been more accessible. And to that point, highly recommend a bunch of the people that Lazarina mentioned to follow. So whether that's like Lee Foote or Andy Volpini or Jess Peck, they're all brilliant. Um, that said, Lazarina, are you ready for some rapid fire rankings? ready let's do okay it. let's do this let's go start the clock put on the music here we go lazarina rank your best seo marketing win right it's just one it's building relationships That's oh i it. love that rank your <laughs> top three seo tools uh, crawlers. So I'm, I have categories. Crawlers, uh, SEMrush and Ahrefs is just a category on its own. <laughs> <laughs> I have Google tools as my third category. So Data Studio, Sheets, Colab, whatever else that Google has built is great. I such a cheat, but I love it. Yeah, I mean, because that's that's what you love. Rank your I'm, best I'm SEO. Be <laughs> <laughs> Rank your best SEO trick or tactic. Right. So. 
trick or tactic, I would say repurposing content, pattern identification from SERPs, and working with entities. So good. Okay, rank what you love most about SEO. Ability to learn every day. I love that. Rank the top one to three SEOs that you most look up to or admire. Get ready to cheat. <laughs> no, All of them. Here. So on number one, I just put women in tech SEO community because honestly, every single day I talk to these women and I get so much advice and I try to give as much as I get. And it's such a great community, honestly. Everyone from there is just amazing. So at number two, I put Python and machine learning influencers. So in that list, I have Greg Bernhardt. I very much admire him. He's great. Andrea Volpini, Charlie Wagner, uh, JC Chernard. I'm so sorry for butchering names and uh, Jose Hernando. And, and my third category is leadership and development. And in that category, I have Paddy Mugan from Ira and Tom Krishlo. They're awesome. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I, I adore Those are my, my mentors that I've never met, except for the women in tech SEO, but then from the category two and three. <laughs> and, and before this episode, we were just talking about like all the conferences you want to go to, and that's where you get to meet and hang out with these people. Finally, rank your number one cause or charity that you'd like to promote. So I have a cause and it's like a little bit long winded of an answer, but people that know me know that I'm a huge fan of like just taking care of animals in any way, shape or form that you can. I have two cats and I have a dog that I'm taking care of for like such a long time now and I'm super happy about it. So I would encourage anyone that wants to either foster, adopt or even go donate a couple of hours of volunteering work to an animal shelter nearby you or even donate a pound of food. They would be super, super happy that you have done that and you will feel so much better afterwards. I love that. There you go. And I'm a dog person myself. And I thought you were going to jinx it. I thought at that moment, your dog was going to bark in the background because you warned me. You're like, at any point. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Lazarina. This has been awesome. It is a pleasure to talk to you about all this stuff and geek out. If people want to find you online, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, on Twitter, my handle is Lazarina Stoy and my website is lazarinastoy.com. There you have it. Lazarina Stoy um, of Intrepid Digital. My name is Garrett Sussman of iPoll Rank. This has been another episode of Rankable. Thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.